lately, uh, I've been, I don't know if you guys do this, but uh, I've been watching a lot of debates between Christians and atheists or agnostics uh, on YouTube. Any, any guys ever do this? It's really a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's principally entertainment. It's not really so much substance as it is show. There's some good things that are said there, but you find out that debating doesn't have a whole lot to do with the truth or with substance. It has a whole lot more to do with how biting your sarcasm is. Because usually the, the debater who's the, the wittiest or who has the best sarcasm usually tends to win with, at least with the reaction from the crowd. Most of these debates are held on university campuses, so you end up with a lot of students, uh, hearing from a lot of students. They ask questions and they make comments on the debater, the debater's comments. Sadly, as I watch some of these uh, debates, I've discovered how utterly indoctrinated many, if not most, of the young people are. Uh, it seems like many, if, if not most, have bought into philosophical relativism. Now, you guys, I know you've, you've heard a lot, lot about that. Relativism just says that, you know, what is right, what is good or bad is always variable. It's, uh, it's not fixed, it's not permanent, it's not absolute. It can be adjusted and can be adapted to the situation. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? This seems to be pervasive on most of the campuses, uh, in particularly the U.S., some of these debates that I've been, I've been watching. You know the, the mantra of, of the relativists, that may be true for you, but what? It's not true for me, right? So you guys know the, uh, the mantra of the philosophy. The result of that kind of thinking is what? There is no absolute truth, right? There is no absolute truth. Truth is something that uh, you actually, you don't bring to the issue. The truth is determined by the issue. You understand what I'm saying? So you don't bring uh, an, uh, a fixed absolute truth to the problem. You come to the problem with your own feelings and you decide what the truth is based on the problem. That's uh, relativism. It's situational. It's circumstantial. Many times it's cultural. The truth is in the eye of the beholder, right? University uh, philosophy professors, they teach their students that no one's opinion is superior to anyone else's, that there is no hierarchy of, of truth or values, that anyone's viewpoint is just as valid as anyone else's viewpoint. We all have our own truth. This is relativism. Now, if you think about this for more than about 120 seconds, maybe a little longer, you realize that absolute truth is self-evident. It is self-evident. It's logically necessary. Philosophically, relativism is contradictory. Practically, uh, relativism is anarchy, if you take it to its fullest extension. So uh, relativism uh, philosophically is, is logically indefensible, and of course the same is true for religious relativism. Now, let me talk about that just for a minute. I'm sure you've all heard someone uh, say that all world religions are basically the same, that they all have validity, and effectively they're just different routes to God. Have you all heard this? I'm, I know that, particularly most of the internationals, I know that you've had to hear this. I've heard it many, many times. How many of you have read uh, Ravi Zacharias' book that we have on the book table called 
Jesus Among Other Gods. Have you guys ever read this guy? He's really, really good. Hey, go out and watch him debate. He's outstanding. Go out and watch him debate. Uh, most, most of the atheists and agnostics and Darwinists won't debate him. Uh, nor a guy named uh, William Lane Craig. So, but go out and look at, uh, watch Robbie and watch William Lane Craig. They do a good job. But regarding uh, religious relativism, Robbie says it like this. Now, this is a little bit of a long quote, but I want you to stay with me. I want you to hear what he says. Modern pluralistic cultures are beguiled by the cosmetically courteous idea, I love that, cosmetically courteous idea that sincerity of belief is all that counts and that truth is subject to the beholder. Listen to this. In no other discipline of life can one be so naive. Amen? In no other discipline of life can you be that naive. To say that all religions are right and that it does not matter whether the claims are objectively true is a catastrophic error in thinking. He continues, All religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not and accordingly defining life's purpose. He continues, Anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays a shocking ignorance of all religions. Every religion at its core is exclusive. And here's the sentence I want you to hear. Okay, don't ever forget this sentence. Ravi concludes like this. Whether you're talking about philosophy or religion, Ravi says, truth cannot be all-inclusive. Truth by definition is what? Someone tell me. Truth by definition what? It excludes what? The false. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. By definition, truth excludes the false. You know, we lost a new ager on that one one time when we first came here. We had a, uh, a new age Gnostic who kind of hung around the church for a while. And, you know, she was in some of the Bible studies. And I just finally, you know, she had no tolerance for our intolerance of untruth. And I just had to lovingly tell her, you know, that the Bible is God's word, period. We stand on it. It's God's word, period. And... Uh, I told her that no matter what spills out of the, the mouth of a man, whether he's a philosopher or a shaman or a, a guru or an imam or a rabbi or a monk or a priest or a bishop or a pope or even a Protestant uh, preacher, anything that comes out of the, uh, anyone's mouth other than the Word of God is merely speculation. It's merely speculation. And uh, she didn't like that much and she left never to return. Anything and everything other than biblical truth is nothing but the speculations of men. And you hear Paul talk about that in our text tonight. Colossians chapter 2, he talks about philosophy and persuasive arguments and empty deceit. Beloved, the absolute truth is that the truth is absolute. What's his name? Someone tell me. Yes. God is his name. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth. What does He say? What does He say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. There's nothing relative about that. There's nothing circumstantial about that. There's nothing situational about that. Jesus says, I'm the truth. I'm the only way. That's the truth, period. It's not relative in any sense. You've got to love Jesus, man. He's not worried about being politically correct. And he's not worried about being cosmetically courteous. He is the antithesis 
of the relativist. He is always unequivocal, always unambiguous, always unapologetic, and always unmistakably clear. He says, I'm the truth. There is no other. Jesus Christ says, I am the truth. So tonight, we hear Paul exhort the Colossians to to stay on the absolute truth, to stay on Jesus Christ, to give no heed to man-made philosophies or man-made religion. Paul says it right here in the text. He says, don't be deluded by persuasive arguments. And he says, let no one take you captive through philosophy or empty deceit. Just by way of review, I think I'm going to tell you this every sermon I preach in Colossians just because I think it's so eminently important. Uh, Paul continues to hold up Jesus Christ. He says, He's all you need. You don't need anything else. And if anyone's teaching you need Christ plus something, that's a false gospel. That's not a biblical gospel. If someone is... is and this is what was happening in the, in the church of Colossae. False teachers were teaching that you had to have Jesus plus something else like legalism or religion or performance or works or mysticism. You had to have something plus Jesus to be saved. Friends, when you hear that, you know it's always false. It's not biblical. And as I've been saying to you, in fact, it is demonic. It doesn't matter if you call it Catholic, Protestant, or something else. Anytime you add anything to Jesus, it's false. It's a false gospel. And in my mind, as I've shared with you each, in each one of these sermons, I don't know if there's a higher form of blasphemy than to try to add something to the finished work of Jesus on the cross Look at verses 1 through 4. I've got to get new glasses. I'm having trouble finding the focal point. Oh, here we are. Back here. Okay. Um, Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth, that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments. Paul is simply telling the Colossians initially in verse 1 how much he loves them. And how much he loves the body of Christ. He struggled and suffered mightily for the body of Christ. Paul just had this love affair with the body of Christ. Now it's clear from the text that Paul's never met these people. But he loves them. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me all the time. I have people from all over the world come into this church and boom, immediately I have a connection with them. Sometimes a connection that's even stronger or more real than the connection I have with some of my own family members. You guys know what I'm talking about? Man, you connect with that person. Man, they're, they're your brother. They're your sister. This is what Paul is saying. Man, I've struggled mightily for you. He said, I love you people. He says, he's, saying, he's communicating, in my view, he's communicating his unwavering love for not only Jesus Christ, but for the people of God. Verse 2, Paul says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. How? How are our hearts supposed to be encouraged? What does he say there? Right in, at the very beginning of verse 2, he says, uh, by knitting together in love your hearts, knitting your hearts together in love, to be knit together in love. You know what 1 John 5, 1 says? It says, whoever loves the father loves the child uh, born of him. 
It's what biblical Christianity looks like. I know we seem to cover this a lot, but you know, all I do is preach verse by verse, and it just seems like we, we keep hitting this, this situation about loving the brethren. I mean, it's just all through the, the New Testament. The Christian is to love the brethren. It's non-negotiable. This is the call of God. This is the call of God. The supernatural love that one believer has for another. We know that First John, we, we talked about that book, I guess, about a year and a half ago now. We, as we preached through it, we know that First uh, John is the book of assurance. How can we know we're a Christian? Go read First John. If you look like First John, you're a Christian. But, but 50 times, over 50 times in that small little book, five chapters, John talks about love. The word love is mentioned 50 times. And he's, he's hammering home that we are to love the body. You know John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are mine. By what? How will men know that you belong to Christ? How will they know it? By, by your love for one another. So let me ask you, Christian friend, are you loving the body? Are you serving the body? Are you being poured out for the body? This is what Christianity looks like. This is what biblical Christianity looks like. So how are, how are uh, all men to know? Is it because you're, doc, you're doctrinally sound or you attend church or you say and do religious things? No, it's because you love each other. That's how people know we're a biblical church. Because we love each other and we serve each other and we meet each other's needs and we encourage each other. That's what it means to be a Christian. And Paul says, let your hearts be knit together in love. According to Jesus Christ, this is the litmus test of being a Christian. The Holy Spirit is quite blunt and is absolutely clear. He's not a relativist either. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, anyone who does not love his brother is what? Does anybody know? He's not of God. If you don't love your brother, don't even pretend to be a Christian. You're not, the Bible says you're not a Christian. You're not of God at all. If you don't, in fact, love your brother. And then 1 John 3, 14, the Holy Spirit says... This is how we know that we're really Christians. Listen to it. I'll just read it to you. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. There it is. Our assurance of salvation, in part, is seen as God's love flows through us into the body and as we, as we serve the body. As I said last week, brothers and sisters, you guys know, that, you know Christianity has never been academic. It's never been um, theoretical. It's always applied. It's always, hey, love for the Christian, it is not a noun. It is a what? It's a verb. You're supposed to do it. Every day. You're supposed to love and serve your brothers and sisters. It is part of, part of the assurance that we have. Go read 1 John. Genuine Christianity is obviously not merely having a feeling of love. It's, it's doing the work of love. And I was just thinking about some of the things that, that love does. I've mentioned some of them earlier, but it comforts, right? It comes alongside and it comforts. It, uh, it encourages. It meets needs. It really meets needs. When there's a need, it meets it. This is Christian love. It gives. It open-handedly gives. This is what Christians do. We open-handedly give. This is the call of God. We serve one another. It's always a verb. It's never not been a verb. Paul says, let your hearts be knit together in love. So when was the last time, Christian friend, let me ask you, when you serve somebody, 
when you met a need in somebody's life, when you came alongside to encourage them, when was the last time you made it a point to do that? And I'm not talking about syrupy, mushy, sentimental feelings. I'm talking about rolling up your sleeves and going to work. That's what I'm talking about. You know, the, the phrase I like to use is blood, sweat, and tears love. That's really the kind of love that, that Jesus modeled for us, and that's the kind of love that He calls us to. And the, the thing about it is most of you know that the, the cool thing is that when you exercise love, you love to love. The more you love, the more you exercise love, the more you do love, the more addicting it is. You know, faith is addicting. If you actually, you know, step out on God's Word and believe it and do it, it's addicting. Same thing is true with love, man. When you love and serve your brothers and sisters, it's addicting. It's just, it feels right. You know, it's like, it's like, what did Eric Little say in the, the Chariots of Fire? He says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. Well, there it is. When you love the body, you will feel the pleasure of God in your life. You say your Christianity is a little dry. You say it's not what it used to be. Let me tell you, friends, roll up your sleeves and love your, your brothers and your sisters. It won't be dry anymore. You will feel the pleasure of God. Um, so as we learn to love, as God has called us to love, our hearts are encouraged. Our hearts are encouraged. Look at verse 2. Paul says, I want you to be encouraged in loving each other. And then he goes on to say, verse 2 and 3, he says, I want your heart to be encouraged by attaining to the true knowledge and wisdom of Christ. Paul says, let your hearts be greatly encouraged in radically loving one another and in radically knowing more of Jesus Christ. God says, be encouraged in heart, united in love, and get locked on to Jesus. This is what God is saying to us. Get locked on to Him. We've talked a lot about this over the years. Why does God want you to be... You see the, you see the word in the text there, to be assured. Full assurance in verse 2. Why does God want you to be fully assured that you're a Christian? There are several ways to answer that. But... I think, in my view, He wants you to be fully assured because the fully assured Christian will live a fully persuaded life. He'll live a fully persuaded life. He, he won't be afraid to step out in faith. He knows God's with him. He knows God's going to show up. He, know God, he knows God's going to do a God thing. Paul says, I want you to, to, to live in the wealth of full assurance. God wants you to know you're His. God wants you to know you're a son of God. God wants you to know you're a daughter of God. And then He wants you to live it. And you're free to live it because you have assurance of that relationship, the reality of that relationship. You know, Hebrews 11 faith, real men and real women with real faith and a real God making a real impact in the real world. There it is. That's the Christian call. That's it. Hebrews 11, that we would actually live it. That's what Paul, in my view, one of the things he's driving home here. So Paul's talking about real, genuine, authentic, true understanding. True understanding of absolute truth, not philosophical uh, or religious speculations. Christians, we don't base our life on conjecture, supposition, rumor, and hearsay. We base our life on this. So how often are you in this every week? How often are you in this? Are you understanding the wealth uh, that you're to have and your full assurance you're to have by spending time with the Lord in 
the Word of God. The believer. We get it. We say it all the time in here. We get it. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. We understand that. Colossians 1.16. We talked about it several weeks ago. We were created by Him and for Him. And so we, we get that. We get that. And we order our lives around that truth. We build our lives around the absolute reality of the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's about Him. It is about Him. It's all about Him. And this is part of the wealth that Paul mentions here uh, um, as a Christian, in our full assurance, it's a life well lived. A Christian life well lived in full assurance. Our God is, is, is God and He'll keep every one of His promises. And I can live this Christianity huge and I can live it radical. Beloved, He, he wants you to believe that. He wants you to live it. He wants you to live it. A life well lived, this is part of the wealth of having full assurance that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. He's God. He's Savior. He's Lord. He's my brother. He's my friend. Live it huge, Christian. Are you living it like that? Why are you living it like that? Are you living it really small? Why? Let me ask you. Why? Why are you living your Christianity small? Is it because everybody else is? That's a poor excuse. God's given you everything you need. God's given you everything you need. The third member of the Trinity indwells you. Beloved, Go live it huge. Go live it huge. All that God has for you. So we get it. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And He's calling us to a God-sized freedom and a God-sized joy and a God-sized life. A life that matters every single day. Don't you love that? A life that impacts eternity every single day. A life that pleases God every day. A life that, that uh, lays up treasures in heaven every day. This is what God's calling us to. A Christian life well lived. To live in our, the full assurance of, of all that we know to be true about God. Did you notice that Paul uses this word mystery again there at the end of verse 2? We talked about that some last week. What does that mean, mystery? Well, it's not something that's inscrutable. It's simply something that's been hidden uh, in, pa- in the past that God is, has now revealed. It's, not that, uh, it's something that hasn't been revealed previously in the Old Testament. What is it? It's, we talked about it last week. It's that Christ is in us. This awesome, unspeakable, breathtaking truth that Christ is in us. He is our hope of glory. You know, it's that John 17 stuff. It's that, it's that yeah, it's that stuff that's almost too awesome to, to, to comment on. John chapter 17, verse 13, that God's joy would be made full in us. You know, it's this, this intimacy, this stunning intimacy that the New Testament believer has in Christ, has with God. This was never seen in the Old Testament. John 17 again, verse 21, that inexplicably we will be made one with the Father and the Son. This is the prayer of Jesus, verse 22, that somehow we're caught up in and we'll taste the glory of God. Verse 23, that we are loved by the Father even as the Father has loved the Son. Friends, this is, this is stunning revelation. This is stunning revelation.
you know, we need to really think deeply about these things. This is the wealth of our full assurance. God expects us to live it. He expects us to live it. You know, Romans 8, the whole co-heirs thing. I could go on and on, but we'll move on. Verse 4. Verse 4. Paul says, in order, he says, he says uh, remember who you are in order that you may not be deluded. By what? Persuasive arguments, false philosophies, and false religion. God says man-made philosophies and man-made religions are worthless. We know what the Bible says about unregenerate man. We know what the Bible says about natural man, the unbeliever. He is utterly bankrupt in heart and in mind. And you know, when I'm watching the YouTube and I'm watching these guys, you can just see it, man. You, you can see that they're utterly bankrupt. They're completely futile in their thinking and their hearts are utterly black. You can see it. You know what the Bible says, Romans chapter 1, that man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 again, that man is futile in his speculations and he's without understanding. Ephesians chapter 4, that, that natural man walks in the futility of his mind. His heart is darkened. His understanding is darkened. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, that natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. You know, you listen to these guys and it's, Actually, you go, go out and listen to some of these guys. It's speculation piled upon top of speculation piled upon top of speculation piled upon top of speculation. That's human philosophy. That's false religion. Paul says, beware of futile specul speculations from Christ-rejecting philosophers and from those who, who propagate or promote a Christ-plus gospel. Friends, I said this to you a couple of weeks ago. Anytime you run into a lie or half-truth, who have you just encountered? Satan, the father of lies. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting in what is called a church or not. If you run into a, 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 a lie or a half-truth, uh, the father of lies is being represented in that place. This is the word of God. Remember how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. He says, Paul says, this is, the, this is the work of the Christian to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul says to the Colossians, and he's saying to you and me, we're supposed to obliterate all speculation. Obliterate it. Any speculation against the true knowledge of God and proactively take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Let's look here at verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Paul says, I have heard about you guys, right? We've already heard this from Paul. He says, I've heard about you guys from Epaphras over there in chapter 1, verse 7. I've heard about you guys. It's real with you. I've heard about it. 
Don't you love that? He says, I've heard that it's real with you. He says, I've heard about your good discipline and your stability of your faith in Christ Jesus. If you look at the original language here, there's this connotation of, of these are military terms, there's this connotation of holding rank. He says, you're holding rank with God. Amen? Isn't that an awesome thing? He says, you're holding rank with God. You're steadfast. You can't be scattered. You can't be broken. You're holding rank. You're committed to the living God. And then he says in verse 6, he says, so what? What does he say in verse 6? Somebody tell me. What's the, what's the exhortation in verse 6? Walk in Him. Walk in Him, Christian friend. Walk in Him. What a beautiful exhortation. As I told you earlier, it's not academic. It's not theoretical. God means for you to go live it out in the world in such a way that people see it and they are attracted to it and are... Uh, you may be persecuted for it. But to live it out in the world, it's a lifestyle to walk in Him and with Him every day. I tell you this all the time. Jesus meant it when He said, follow me. He meant that. He means for you to go with Him. He doesn't mean for you to do a couple of religious things and then sit in the pew uh, for the rest of your days. That's not what He means by Christianity. He means for you to go with Him radically extravagantly this is the call of the new testament christian how does the holy spirit say it in first john chapter 2 verse 6 the one who says he abides in christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as christ walked we know we can't walk sinless like jesus right we know we can't do that but we can walk in the same manner he walked you say well how can we do that jim easy easy we can do it we can walk in love can't we we can walk in humility. We can walk in truth. We can walk in service. We can walk in the Spirit. We can walk in obedience. We can walk prayerfully. We can walk expectantly. We can walk assuredly. We can, we, we, with all joy, we trust in the sovereignty of God. Whether, whether blessing or trial comes, we trust and we praise God. That's what Christianity looks like. We're not... We're not fair weather, uh, fair weather believers. We trust in the goodness of God no matter what the circumstances are. We are not relativist Christians. Jesus says, this is my food to do the will of my Father. And this is to be our fruit, our food, beloved. And Paul says, walk in the wealth of your full assurance and understanding in Christ. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Every day when you wake up, it's a lifestyle. It's how you love your spouse. It's how you raise your kids. It's how you do your job. It's how you give your money. It's how you serve your church. It's a lifestyle. It's how you deal with your neighbors. It's how you deal with it when, the, when you have a flat tire. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Verse 7, Paul says, this flows out, this, this lifestyle of radically loving and and obeying Jesus, it flows out of a life, look at this, verse 7, firmly rooted and built up and established in Christ. We touched on this last week. Christianity has always been very, very simple. If, you have, if, you, if you've been mystified by Christianity, let me boil it down to this for you. Christians give themselves to the study of the Word, and then Christians give themselves to the... Someone tell me. Doing the Word. It's very simple. You know, you don't need a lot of robes and hats and stuff and big buildings. And 
You don't need a bunch of junk. Real Christians give themselves to the study of the Word, and real Christians do the Word. Albeit imperfectly, none of us do it perfectly. We own that. We own that. But that is our call. Notice here in verse 7, Paul ends up, he says, this kind of life, you know, being strong in heart, let me just summarize some of the things. Strong in heart, united in love, settled in understanding, stable in faith, firmly rooted, built up in Christ, walking in Him. All this leads to, and I love this how he ends verse 7, it leads to overflowing with gratitude or thanksgiving. It's really getting the whole Christ is in me, the hope of glory thing, and a billion eternities will not be long enough to give thanks to God about that. Again, we've talked so much about it. I, I hate to mention it, but how can you not mention it? We were enemies, but now we're co-heirs. You know, a billion eternities will not be long enough to praise God uh, for that fact. You know, thanksgiving should just be welling up in our hearts all the time. If we're really thinking about all that the Bible says we are in Christ, nothing should be able to steal our joy. John, uh, pardon me, James chapter 1. Nothing. We are God's people. We are God's people. We are sons and daughters. Paul says, verse 8, remember who you are and see to it that you stay on Jesus. Don't be enticed by man-made philosophies or man-made religions or the traditions of men. You know, some venerate tradition simply because it's a tradition. Um, as if the tradition somehow was on par with the Word of God. I love what MacArthur says about this, John MacArthur, that preacher in the U.S. <laughs> he says, There's nothing necessarily sacred about a tradition. Often it is nothing more than perpetuated human ignorance. Amen? Hey, I found that to be true in the tradition I grew up in. I don't know what tradition you grew up in, Christian tradition. But traditions seem to somehow, in some ways, many times, supplant what God's Word actually says. I think MacArthur is right. Did you notice that God says the man-made philosophies and religion, it's according to the elementary principles of the world. It's high-sounding man-made nonsense. Yeah, go watch YouTube. A lot of high-sounding man-made nonsense. At best, it's merely rudimentary. It's simplistic in scope. At worst, it's, it's demonic. It's counterfeit i know that you've seen this or experienced this but those who like to to talk man-made nonsense are always intolerant of those who talk god-made wisdom who always stand on the truth who always stand on the bible you know natural man loves to condescend toward those who believe in the bible they love to ridicule us as simpletons or as neanderthals we're, we're effectively cavemen we don't know anything they love to criticize us about that but beloved we know the truth. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. You know, C.S. Lewis, he worked at Oxford. He took a lot of heat for being a believer. And, he, you know, I love what he says about this. He says, you know, the answer to people like that is this. That such people, you know, if they can't understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. Don't you love that? <laughs> and I've used that quote many times on several knuckleheads I've known down through the years. Um, you know, if... if yeah, they just shouldn't comment on, on uh, books written for grown-ups. They just shouldn't comment on them. But, the, but God says it even better than C.S. Lewis. And some of you could probably guess where I'm going to turn. I'm going to close with 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. If I can, in fact, read my Bible. Uh, 
Got to get some new glasses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 24. Listen to what God says about His wisdom and the wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Anyone want to say anything? Amen? Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is, somebody read it to me, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Beloved, God is calling you to walk in the wealth of your full assurance. God is your God. God is your Father. God is your Savior. Live like it. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. Paul says, walk in Him. That's the message tonight. Walk in Him. Walk in Jesus this week. Maybe like you've, you've never walked in Him before. Walk in Him. Magnify Him. Honor Him. Glorify Him. Let Him be seen to be beautiful and desirable and compelling and full of infinite worth to everybody that meets you. Magnify the Lord. Magnify the Lord this week. Oh, you just got to love verse 24. But to the called, He is the power and the wisdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we talked about last week, we're so wealthy. We're infinitely rich. Many of us live like spiritual paupers, and I know this must not be pleasing to You, Lord. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would drive this truth home deep into our hearts, and that we would be fully assured Christians, and that we would be fully persuaded Christians, and we would live a fully persuaded life. We would not be timid. We would not be afraid. We would not shrink back. But we would live in the true wealth of our full assurance. We would not be deluded by high-sounding nonsense. But we will stay on the Word of God. We will be students of the Word of God. And Lord, help us. We will do the Word of God. We praise You, great Lord. We thank You for this this, this exhortation from the Apostle Paul. We thank You for this warning that we would stay on Jesus. We wouldn't flirt with the world. We'd stay on Jesus. Thank You, Father. Thank You that He is the power and the wisdom of God. We praise You, awesome, beautiful Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.